0: trip inside the brain. And not just any brain, but specifically an artificial brain that is being built to mimic the operation of the human brain. It's called the spiking neural network architecture. And we're going to look at an initiative associated with it called Spinnaker 2 in an episode we call Building a Brain with 10 Million CPUs. The goal of this work is to advance the knowledge of neural processing in the brain. With me today to explain all of this are Steve Ferber, ICL professor of computer engineering in the School of Computer Science at the University of Manchester, and Christian Marr, a professor of electrical engineering at the University of Technology, Dresden. Steve Ferber is the ICL Professor of Computer Engineering in the School of Computer Science at the University of Manchester. Prior to moving to academia, he worked in the hardware development group within the R&D department at Acorn Computers, and was a principal designer of the BBC Micro and the ARM 32-bit microprocessor. Having written my first book about the BBC Micro some 38 years ago, I'm very excited to talk to Steve. He holds many fellowships and awards, such as being a Fellow of the Royal Society, the Royal Academy of Engineering, the British Computer Society, and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Meanwhile, Christian is a Professor of Electrical Engineering at the University of Technology, Dresden heading the chair of highly parallel VLSI systems and neomorphic circuits. His scientific credits include the world first neuromorphic system on a chip in 28 nanometer CMOS several novel mixed-signal ICs aimed at the interface between nerve cell tissue and electronics, as well as foundational work on the modeling and circuit implementation of synaptic plasticity. He's the author or co-author of more than 70 publications and holds three patents, Welcome to you both. Hi, Jeff. Thank you. Perhaps we can start with what this work is about. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with the Spinnaker project and spiking neural networks. So why don't we kick things off by providing an overview of what this is and why it's important.
1: Okay, so Spinnaker... as you said earlier, stands for Spiking Neural Network architecture, and the motivation for Spinnaker is is based on the observation that the principal way that the brain cells inside each of our heads communicate is through spikes. Where a spike is a little impulse. I think of it as a just going ping every so often. So all the thoughts you're having are spatiotemporal patterns of pings inside your head, and uh, that's quite a weird thing to think about. But the Spinnaker machine was built uh, to provide uh, a platform upon which we could build uh, realistic, real-time models of, of, of brain functions. That is pretty amazing. So at its heart, what are the benefits of spiking neural networks? The obvious benefit in the case of Spinnaker is if you want to understand the brain, uh, spikes are fundamental to how the brain works. But if you're more interested in engineering applications of neuromorphic systems, for example, to implement AI, then spikes have the potential benefit of of enabling you to build uh, much more power-efficient systems because they're inherently event-based, so energy is only used when something interesting happens, and they can also operate very sparsely, so only a very small part of the system is active at any time, and that can reduce the energy compared with conventional AI networks, which do heavy computations throughout the network uh, all the time. So Steve,
0: that brings us to the Spinnaker project itself. What is this exactly and how did the idea for the project come about?
1: As you heard, my background goes back to the 80s with Acord and early developments of uh, the first ARM processor. And I'd spent 20 years building, if you like, conventional computing systems. In the 90s, I was building asynchronous, so they're slightly unconventional uh, processors. Um, but over those 20 years, processors had got formidably more powerful, but they still couldn't do things that that humans find easy. So I became fascinated by the fundamental differences between computing systems and biological brains. And that led me to thinking about um where were the problems in understanding the brain and what could I as a computer engineer do to contribute to accelerating our understanding of how the brain functions?
0: So Steve, now you have me wondering about the technology used in Spinnaker and um, how you set about choosing it and,
1: and why was it the right choice? We spent quite a long time thinking about what was the right architecture for building brain models. and And the first key idea we came up with was Um, a novel way of interconnecting uh, neurons inside a computer model. And and we thought for a long time about how we build little hardware engines that could support the kind of models that computational neuroscientists use. What we realized was that those models were not particularly stable. In particular, um, learning rules, the way that brains adapt their connections to learn uh, new concepts, the models that computational neuroscientists use uh, keep changing. And and if we want to build a, a hardware platform for supporting a rapidly changing set of models, then the obvious way to do it is is to use software for those models. So having conceived of the interconnect mechanism first, we then moved away from using hardware engines to using programmable engines. The problem of modeling the brain is in the embarrassingly parallel class, so you can break it up into as many small pieces as you want. And the most efficient way to compute an embarrassingly parallel problem is to use very large numbers of relatively small and simple processors. Uh, uh, And with my background linked to the ARM, uh, the ARM was the obvious choice. Um, Indeed, using quite a low-end ARM um, as the basis for Spinnaker 1.
2: Actually, uh, I would completely second that I mean, uh, my group got started early 2000s in neuromorphic design and we made exactly that mistake in trying to streamline circuits too much for a given application. And by the time we had the chip, the theoretists had already moved on and the model was something completely different. So we tried that a couple of times and then we went to way more kind of configurable analog hardware. But in analog hardware, you still have this problem that this this configuration space just gets too large. So I'm completely with Steve on that one to use our
0: embarrassingly parallel digital system, actually, for this kind of exploration. And thank you for that, Christian. And that brings us to Spinnaker 2 and the work to team up with the University of Technology in Dresden. So, Christian, can you tell us a bit more about the collaboration uh, and Spinnaker 2 and the differences between it and Spinnaker 1?
2: Yes, certainly. Um, So, as I already said, um, we were starting on neuromorphics early 2000s. We actually were in the loud chair by Siemens, Dash, and Finian, mid of the 90s, working on this first wave of AI hardware. Uh, Then we got sidetracked into brain models, and uh, basically we were hardcore electrical engineers, so working a lot on very down-to-earth, transistor-level, analog stuff, but also communication circuits multiprocessor systems on chip for various applications and we uh, were part of precursor projects of the human brain project so brain scales and facets and that's when steve became an associated partner there and that's how we all ended up in the human brain project and in 2013 beginning of the human brain project a couple of us uh, flew over to manchester and presented what we had been doing also in other projects like these process systems on chip Um, to Steve and basically we said we match up like like perfect match so Steve has all the system level high level knowledge and we do the down-to-earth basically back-end transistor level engineering which uh, in sum lets us make a way more kind of powerful system in addition to using new technologies and a new ARM core than the old Spinnaker was. Yeah,
0: and you're talking about the European Union uh, Human Brain Project. Maybe you can give our listeners a bit more detail on what that project is and how it came about. So uh,
2: the way I see it, I mean, there's different stories, but the way I see it, it came from two projects. So the one was Henry Markram's Blue Brain Project, so making very detailed brain models and simulating them on large IBM-derived compute machines, and the other one was the one we were part of, this wafer-scale analog system, neuromorphic system that got built in Heidelberg. Basically, karl Meyer, the head guy in Heidelberg, as well as Henry, they had proposed their own versions of projects for the flagship program of the European Union. And I remember the session in Capocaccia in this neuromorphic workshop, the yearly one, where the two met up and basically said, let's match this. Let's do the hardware, this kind of... Uh, N- neuro-inspired ICT um, hardware pr- approach, plus the brain simulation. And let's do a big project that basically homogenizes brain models and builds large machines that can assimilate those brain models and derive new computational and AI principles from them. So that's how the human brain project, to my mind, got started. Fascinating.
0: And. And I understand that uh, more recently, you've evolved this to, to run in the cloud. Maybe you could both talk a bit about that, maybe starting with you, Christian. Um, so what we realized
2: when we built Spinnaker 2 is, uh, of course, from Spinnaker 1 derived, it's mostly machine for brain simulation, but we built in additional accelerators, which make the machine way more versatile, including, for example, a multiply accumulate array, which is the standard thing you use to uh, do deep learning, deep neural networks on there. So uh, we just chopped around what the capabilities of that machine were and what it could be used for. And my chair is traditionally connected to automotive industry, to industry, uh, or to companies working in the industry for zero field, and they need massively parallel real-time AI computing. And that's what made us decide to offer this not quite as a cloud service. It's more an on-site or at least a geographically close cloud where you can still keep below the millisecond, even including the communication delays, and basically run something like a smart city with a localized cloud in real time, including all the sensor data, all the actors that need to be driven uh, in millisecond latencies. So it's, it's a real-time edge cloud, something
1: like that. And, and Steve, how do you see the evolution to the cloud? We're already uh, offering a form of cloud service through the Human Brain Project. So the Human Brain Project has this brain science infrastructure called eBrains. And uh, Spinnaker and the other neuromorphic platform, the Brainscales platform from the University of Heidelberg, are the two principal neuromorphic computing platforms under eBrains. There are also uh, many variants of high-performance computing and uh, things like the, the brain knowledge graph, many brain models. Um, but we've uh, developed an understanding of how to turn this large Spinnaker machine into an open service. We have something like, I think, 450 users out there submitting jobs. It's free to use. Um, and, and so we've developed the software infrastructure for managing the machine as a cloud service. And we are in the process of, of, of porting that capability onto the Spinnaker 2 hardware, which has very recently become available in its full form. And and so we have the background in, in, in developing that service that we will carry over to Spinnaker 2.
0: Now, Kristen, you mentioned uh, the automotive sector as a, one of the commercial opportunities for the technology, but perhaps you could both talk a bit about the more broad commercial opportunities. And maybe, Steve, you could start and then, uh, Christian, uh, add to what you've already said.
1: Christian has uh, much more direct connections with industry than I do. Um, But I think uh, that there is growing interest in neuromorphic technology and its potential to complement, um, if not in some cases, displace mainstream AI solutions because of the Ability we discussed at the beginning of the of the talk um, to deliver AI functions at very low power. Um, I think these applications will will occur in a range of areas. Um, There've been demonstrations of, of applications such as, as as keyword recognition. This is, you know, when you say Alexa or Hey Siri or or whatever the keyword is for your particular system. This is the thing that the system has to be. Uh, permanently switched on to respond to. Uh, So it's very important that that runs at at as low a power as possible. Uh, But I think Christian has a a, a broader perspective on where the industrial applications might go. So in essence, as Steve mentioned in the beginning, the brain is fundamentally different
2: from current deep neural networks in the sense that, for example, the neurons in the brain at any given point in time, there's only 1% of them active. So the brain is very good at just doing the computation it absolutely needs to do to solve a problem. And that already starts with the eye. There's 100 megabits or so impinging on your retina the entire time. What gets transmitted across the optical nerve is only about a megbit. So there's a 100 to 1 compression already there. There is stuff like saccades, which is the eye movements you're doing, which is driven by the visual cortex, which is basically a region of interest selection. You're just looking at stuff that interests you about the image. So that happens at every step in the human brain, or in other brains, that you're condensing the information driven by what you actually need to do to solve a certain task. And that generalizes across any number of fields, basically. So I'm not talking necessarily about offline batch-wise processing, kind of shopping uh, uh, preferences analysis, but anywhere you have real-time sensors. like cars, again, industry for zero, smart cities, um, et etc. et cetera. all these kind of fields that need this kind of streaming AI processing, mostly at real time. This is where inspiration from the brain and in particular Spinnaker 2 really comes in, fits like a glove basically. Um, I must say, um, added by, so what we're also doing at my chair, we're developing a range of um, edge AI so very small microbot chips, basically, that do the necessary pre-processing. Again, a little bit like your eye, but we do it for radar, visual, audio, etc. To really, driven by the training algorithm, actually. So solution-driven, you're extracting specific features about the input. And it's only that stuff that you're then transmitting to this kind of cloud-scale processing at Spinnaker, because that way you reduce the computational load for all the subsequent stages and make it, essentially way more energy efficient and way lower latency. So that's the big game.
0: As you kind of move further beyond that, uh, where do you see further potential opportunities? And maybe, Christian, you want to start and then uh, Steve jump in. As I already said, so I mean, we're commercializing
2: actually Spinnaker 2 via a new company, SpinCloud Systems, and they are securing contracts at the moment with the first smart city customer. So definitely Smart City is it, um, any type of online monitoring improvement like predictive maintenance is it, um, edge clouds or even the AI driving around in the car, driving around in robots. So we also developing showcases where we really run the brain of a humanoid robot, for example, in the machine, connected in real time, of course, embodied inside a robot. So that's for kind of assistance, jobs, uh, human interaction teleoperation, even
1: telemedicine, so we're branching out to all those areas essentially. I would say that we've only fairly recently received the, uh, the full functional Spinnaker 2 chip. Um, there's a whole lot of work to do in, in, the, uh, in the coming years to build this up into a fully functional and serviceable system. What happens beyond that? There's still potential for shrinking the technology onto more advanced processes, uh, improving the density and energy efficiency. Um, but I think before that, what we have to do is is find the killer applications for this technology and then that will uh, open up a whole potential future of, of new developments and applications. Um, just uh, may- maybe another remark. Uh, we've recently started
2: talking to international astronomy people and there seems to be quite a potential. I mean, this is more science. It's not a real commercial application, but uh, they are moving away from... Um, processing astronomical data offline basically. They need it online and they need fast feedback for example to the telescopes in order to also adjust the kind of data extraction that they are doing there. This kind of edge data extraction. So um, basically um, we will probably process data from the square kilometer array on Spinnaker in the near future. So yes. We, we're just spreading out all over the place. <laughs>
0: Well, there's a lot going on, um, and uh, this is probably a pretty broad question, but uh, maybe you can just kind of tell me a bit about what you see as what's next for the Spinnaker project. Steve, you want to kick that off?
1: I'm still really interested in in using this technology to advance our understanding of the brain. I think understanding how the cortex performs its magic and how it interacts with all the other brain subsystems uh, will represent a huge advance in human knowledge, It also has the potential to uh, facilitate the development of treatments for diseases of the brain, which I'm told uh, cost the developed economies more than uh, diabetes, heart disease and cancer put together. Um, So they're hugely important economically. They have a huge impact on the lives of those affected and those around them. Um, So there's a potential for, for huge quality of life benefits from understanding the brain, and and I'm, I hope that uh, if you like our original vision for Spinnaker, will will continue and contribute um, to those developments.
2: Uh, completely agree with Steve. So definitely, uh, I'm also very focused on the neuroscience applications, uh, which I think Sp- uh, Spinnaker 2 is a very good fit for because we can really do multi-scale models on the machine. So f- uh, I mean. Spinnaker 2 will support maybe up to 10 billion neurons, uh, 1,000 times that in synapses, so maybe about 10% of the human brain. But if you want to do full human brain simulation, you don't necessarily need to do that at this detailed level. You could approximate entire areas of the brain that you're not interested in in black box models and just use, for example, the uh, deep neural network accelerators. To train a black box I/O model, input-output model of a brain area, and plug that in at a high level in this model. So there's, and for other parts of the brain, we could go very detailed down to individual kind of uh, molecular channels. So that's where I see us going in the neuroscience direction, to implement really large multiscale models to understand the brain even more, and deriving from that um, kind of new processing paradigms. Uh, first for inference, that's what we're already doing on Spinnaker 2, but uh, moving more towards Spinegar 3, I'm very much interested in learning, because learning right now, this backpropagation learning, it's very inefficient and it's definitely not what biology does. And when you see those very large natural language processing or transformer models, their scaling is uh, at the moment held back by learning. When you look at those papers, they're basically saying, yes, we would have liked to run this data a bit more, but uh, we already took months for training this system, and we can't just rerun it. And the brain just does not do it like that. So we will also look a lot at kind of brain-derived learning algorithms that are as efficient as backpropagation in terms of um, uh, absolute performance of the network, but way more efficient in, in energy and delay, basically. And those will then enter, for example, the Spinnaker 3 design. So we will definitely
0: do numerical learning accelerators also on Spinnaker 3. Moving away from Spinnaker technology and moving to the topic of AI as a whole, what excites you the most about what can happen in the future with AI? And perhaps, Christian, you could start us off and then close out with Steve. So um, I'm actually very excited about what DARPA calls
2: the third wave of AI, which in essence just means... um, Uh, combining old strands of AI again because I think all of those like the expert systems, like symbolic AI they describe parts of what the brain is doing deep neural networks is maybe what the brain is doing in the lower sensor stages but certainly not in the associative cortex that's more like symbolic AI so I'm very much excited about kind of bringing together these different facets of what the brain probably is doing into one homogeneous model. So the efficiency that you get from this neuromorphic spike-based that we were discussing paradigm, the deep neural networks make you able to interact with real sensor data, what symbolic AI never could do back in the 70s and 80s. And you need the symbolic AI for this high-level, kind of abstract reasoning. So that's wh- when we're really moving towards general AI. Because those engines, they were very good in a controlled environment, symbolic AI, like game engines, etc. cetera, um, where deep neural networks are very bad again. But in turn, symbolic AI was very bad at running robots, for example, in a real environment with noisy or incomplete data, where deep neural networks are better. So I'm very much excited about bringing all of this back together again.
1: Yes. And and continuing from that, uh, I mean, throughout history, there's been concern over the term AI or artificial intelligence. And and whilst we've used it quite flexibly in this uh, discussion, um, what we're talking about really still isn't AI. Okay, it's not artificial intelligence. It's machine learning. It's kind of advanced and very sophisticated pattern matching. Um, But I go back to Turing's 1950 paper, uh, where he proposed uh, the test, which he called the imitation game, and which we simply call the Turing test for human-like artificial intelligence. And still, no machine has convincingly passed this test, even 70 years later. And and Turing would have been very surprised by that. And many workers since him uh, thought that developing human-like artificial intelligence uh, was only a matter of writing the right code building the right programs Uh, i think there are still fundamental mysteries in understanding what it is the brain does that makes us us and of course this boils down to self-awareness or consciousness and i would love to see some insights emerging into what is the foundation of consciousness is it simply an emergent property of a complex system of spiking neurons, or is there some um, higher level of science that we don't fully understand that has to be brought into this? I think these are fascinating questions and they're about understanding ourselves, um, which I think is always of interest to humans.
0: Thanks so much to you both for, for those amazing insights. I feel smarter already, although it sounds like Spinnaker 2 is already smarter than me, and it's not even deployed yet. And I'm sure our listeners are excited to learn about this fantastic research and its potential impact on all our lives. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to joining you again soon on the next episode of Arm Viewpoints.